So please turn with me to Mark eleven twenty seven through chapter 12, verse 12. Mark eleven twenty seven through chapter 12, verse 12. That is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning. And so you've heard it mentioned this morning, we're here, it's the last day of 2023, New Year's Eve. Happy New Year's Eve. And as we approach the year 2024, you know, resolutions will be made inevitably. Uh, And as Christians, we often find ourselves reflecting and asking the question of how can I go grow closer to the Lord in this coming year? Many of us desire and hope to grow in our faith, to grow in our worship of God, to worship him rightly with full affection, heart, mind, and feeling. The way we deepen our worship, even as we prayed this morning, the way we deepen our joy in God is by seeing him more for who he is. That's why one of our gospel practices here at DGCC that we articulate is, is we want to see Jesus together as a family because this is what moves us to write in full worship of God. We see Jesus, we see God, and we are moved to worship. So today, as we go into this new year, my hope is, is that we see God in, in two ways. Uh, um, more than that, but two ways today I set before you, that is that we would see God as a giver and that we would see God as he is a builder. God is a giver and God is a builder. God is a giver. He gives life, the very breath we're breathing right now, he gives to us in our lungs as we've been seeing the last couple of weeks, he, he gives mercy and grace. And in the gospel, he gives, us him, he gives us himself. He gives his very self to us in the gospel. God is a giver, the most charitable of givers. God is also a builder. He's, he's the creator. We look around us and we see that he has built everything we see out of nothing. He creates. He's a house builder. He, he, he builds a people, a house for his name. We see him build a temple so that he can dwell in the midst of his people. God is a builder. So, so we can see how these two aspects of God go, go together. God desires to build his temple and give himself to his people by dwelling in their midst. So we'll see these two themes come together in our passage today. And and, and when we behold God in his beauty as a giver and a builder, we can't help but see how we as sinful men are not naturally givers and builders. Rather, we are takers and we tear down, we wreck. We're takers and we're wreckers. And so in this passage, we will see how We, sinful man, have historically responded to this reality of God, the great giver and builder, by rejecting what he gives and by tearing down what he has built. But we will also see how God responds in the gospel of Jesus and uses our very rejection to save us. So you've probably noticed this morning that, as Cody mentioned, our call to worship was the same 
as it, has, as it was a couple of weeks ago from Psalm 118, just a few verses less, um, we use that psalm because as Jesus entered into Jerusalem as the king, this climactic moment in the book of Mark, we read the song of the people was Hosanna, save us, Yahweh, Lord, give us success. This was from Psalm 118. And, and we saw from Uh, from that passage that Jesus is the king who comes to give mercy. And and we we saw later that that even though he's a king who comes to give mercy, it seemed like his first act was that of judgment because he, he cursed the fig tree because of its fruitlessness. And he cleansed the temple in an act of authoritative judgment because of Israel's faithlessness. But we then noted that King Jesus would bear the judgment that his people deserved, that he was pointing to. He would become the curse and be their cleansing. And because of Jesus' authoritative actions and judgments, we also saw the religious leadership of the day, the people in the temple seeking to destroy him. And we'll see in our passage today, they challenge him and his authority. But Jesus will reveal them for who they are, and we will see Jesus quote, again, Psalm 118, when he describes himself as the stone that is rejected to become the cornerstone. And this is the gospel that Jesus says is marvelous to behold. And so when we behold it this morning, let us be moved to right worship and let that be our prayer. Look at our passage Mark 11, 27, 12 through 12, 12. We'll look at it in two parts. First, verses 27 through 33, we see the question. And the the question is this, who has the authority here? Who has the authority here? And and if you take notes, you can put in parentheses, this isn't the answer to the question, but what what we will see in this scene clearly is man is a taker and man is a wrecker. Man takes and man tears down. And then uh, the second part of our passage, verses 1 through 12, we see the answer to the question that was first asked. We see the answer. The father and his beloved son have the authority. And here, in, in this passage, we see clearly, you can put in parentheses in this part of our passage, God is a giver and God is a builder. The main message is just that. God is a giver and a builder. He has given us his son to build us into his temple so that he might dwell with us and us with him forever. First look with me at part one, verses 27 through 33. The question, who has the authority here? And here we will see that man is a taker and a wrecker. First verses 27 through 28, and they came again, it's Jesus and the disciples, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? So we're back in the temple. The last time Jesus was here, he he had just authoritatively judged Israel by cleansing the temple and casting out all those who buy and sell. And and we said this was pointing to the reality of Israel's lack of fruit, their faithlessness. They had 
gathered in the outer courts where the nations were to come and be able to glimpse Israel's relationship with God so that they would be the fruit that is added into God's covenant people. But Israel had been faithless. They lost sight of this, and instead of, uh, instead of drawing the nations in, they had pushed them away. And so Jesus flips tables and chairs and casts and drives everybody out. This is what happened the last time we were in the temple. And here we see the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, three different groups of Jewish leadership. The last time we saw all three of these groups named together, do you remember the last time we saw them? Jesus' very first prediction of his rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection in Mark 8.31. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by who? The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. So Mark is signaling for us that the events that lead to the cross have been set in motion by Jesus' own actions. In fact, we already reflected on this. After Jesus cleanses the temple, the Jewish leadership responds in what way? They seek a way to destroy him. Mark eleven eighteen. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So the Jewish leadership here goes on to ask Jesus about where his so-called authority comes from. And that's, that's the question here. Who has authority in this place? And here in the first two verses, we're already seeing who has the authority. Just consider, what Jesus has just done, cleanse the temple... People are, the Jewish leadership is seeking to destroy him. And and what is he doing? Boldly walking into the temple and walking through it again. Not worried about anything. The leaders, on the other hand, are seeking to destroy him because they fear him. And they're coming to him asking, by what authority are you doing this? They're, They're trying to get back and take the authority that they fear is being taken from them. So you tell me, who appears to be threatened here? Who appears to have the authority here? When a lion walks into a room, it doesn't respond to the people. The people respond to it. These Jewish leaders see Jesus coming and immediately begin to grasp and hold on to the authority they think they have and come to him, challenging him, trying to trap him. It's clear who has the authority here. This is Jesus' father's house. Jesus owns this temple. These Jewish leaders are just tenants, stewards, though they seem to think otherwise. Jesus further His response further displays his authority. Look at verses 29 through 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. So instead of answering their question, Jesus says this, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So Jesus turns the tables by asking them a question, and his question reveals at least three things. First, it reveals what the Jewish religious leaders are really asking. 
Jesus gives two possibilities for John's baptism. It was either from heaven, that is, from God. It was divine, a divine, divinely authoritative, ordained ministry. Or it was from man, man-made, a flash in the pan, will not endure, no authority, nothing. This is what the Jewish leaders are actually asking Jesus. They want to know if Jesus would consider his authority to be divine, that is, from God, or is this just some man-made disturbance? So Jesus' question first reveals what the Jewish leaders are actually asking. They say, do you think, Jesus, that your authority is from God, or are you just a charlatan? Now, second... Jesus' question reveals that he has the authority. We've already noticed this, but twice, just notice how Jesus asks this question. Twice, Jesus commands the Jewish leaders. He begins his question with a command, and he ends his question with a command. Answer me. Just by the nature of his question, it's obvious who has the authority here. Third, Jesus' question will reveal that what the Jewish leadership is asking is not genuine. They are not genuine. Their answer will, will confirm this, but Jesus has, has, has set them up. The question will reveal that they're not actually interested in Jesus' authority, if he is the Messiah or not. What they're actually interested in is their own authority and not losing their influence. Jesus' question will reveal that they're not genuine, that they're actually just seeking a way to trap, destroy, and reject him. So look at verses 31 through 33, and we'll, we'll see this. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we save from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we save from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So, so the Jewish leadership's little holy huddle confirms their intention to trap Jesus. If they admit that John's ministry was, was from God, they expose their hypocrisy because they didn't accept or believe him. Furthermore, if they own that John's baptism was from God then they must also believe that Jesus' authority and ministry is from God because John was preparing his way. Therefore, they must, if that's the case, submit to Jesus' authority. But, on the other hand, if they say that John's baptism was simply man-made fanfare, well, then they could really face problems because then they would lose face with the people. They were afraid of the people because they held John as really a prophet. So what's the common denominator here? The Jewish leadership sees Jesus as a threat to their supposed authority. Either they accept him and submit to him, or they reject him and lose the people. So they plead ignorance. They're not interested in the truth. 
They're not interested if Jesus really is the Messiah or not. They are only interested in protecting themselves, in protecting their power, self-love, self-idolatry, their authority. This disposition, we've talking about how can we lean more into right, true, full worship in 2024. We talked about it at the beginning. This disposition is the opposite of worship. Sin deceives you into seeing God as a taker, not a giver. Sin deceives you into seeing God as one who would withhold something from you. And take whatever you might have. Therefore, man and his sin, what do they do? What do we do? We become a taker. We tear down anything that would be perceived as a threat to our authority, to our self-rule. Sinful man does not look to God to receive from God. He looks to God to take from him his authority and make it his own. Man sets himself up as God and to wreck and tear down anything or anyone that would get in the way, even God himself, as foolish as that is. Sin deceives us into seeing God as a taker. Now, the Jewish leadership here are as we said, not truly interested in Jesus as the divine Messiah. They don't want, as we see here, the Messiah. They only want a Messiah that fits their ideas, a Messiah that would affirm and, and raise them up and, and empower their authority. They want their power and their authority. So Jesus does not answer them because their hearts are set. They are unable and or unwilling, probably both, to see Jesus' divine authority. If he were to tell them, it would not make a difference. In fact, it's this reality, Jesus' divine authority as the Son of God, that will lead to his rejection, crucifixion. So instead, Jesus offers his answer through a parable to illustrate what exactly is happening in this situation. It's nothing new. So look with me at part two, verses one through 12. The answer, the father and his beloved son have the authority. So if the, Ferris, if the uh, chief priests, scribes, and elders are asking, who really has the authority here? We do. What are you doing here, Jesus Here's the actual answer. The father and his beloved son have the authority. And here we see God as a giver and God the builder. So first look with me at verses 1 through 9. This parable of the vineyard and the wicked tenants. Now we cannot read this parable without considering the lens of Isaiah. And we've talked about this uh, at the very beginning of the Mark series, that reading Mark through the lens of Isaiah is one of the clearest ways to understand what Mark is doing. And so here, 
in Isaiah, or in this passage, we see Jesus drawing on Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. I'm going to read it in full, so prepare yourselves, but just listen to Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. This is God speaking. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He, he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall be pruned. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow in it. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So in Isaiah 5, God is using the vineyard to illustrate his people, Israel and Judah. And there we see God, the builder, God having built his vineyard up and planted it. A hedge, a tower, digging a pit for the wine. And he looked for it to bear fruit. And it never did. It only yielded bad fruit. He looked for righteousness. There was only bloodshed. And here, in Mark 12, 1 through 9, we read Jesus speaking this parable. Listen. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they, looked, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So Jesus picks up on God's song in Isaiah 5, in his parable. Note the characters and who they point to. The man who plants the vineyard, we read in verse 9, is called the owner in our English translations, but uh, probably a better translation for that would be the Lord of the vineyard. This is God the Father. The vineyard itself, as, as we've seen, it's God's people, the house of Israel, the people of Judah. It's his people. The tenants, as we will see at the end of this passage, are the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Jewish religious leaders over the people. The servants, then, 
are the prophets God has sent to his people throughout their history who called them to repentance and faithful fruit-bearing and who have been historically rejected. And of course, the beloved son, the only one who has been called the beloved son in Mark, Jesus. So this parable highlights two things. It highlights God's patient kindness. God's persistent and patient kindness and faithfulness to come to his people and seek their fruitfulness. And secondly, it highlights the tenant's twisted wickedness. First, God's patient kindness. So while this parable may seem, you may look at it and, and we think, well, this, this word of the vineyard is pretty naive to keep sending guys when he's seeing what is happening and to ultimately send his son. It's not highlighting his naivety. It's highlighting his patient kindness. There are two unchangeable realities in this parable. The owner of the vineyard, the one who built it, the Lord of the vineyard, has all power and authority over the vineyard. And the tenants are simply that. They're tenants that he has put in place. This means that the Lord of the vineyard, God never had to employ or put these tenants in the, pla- in, in the place they are in the first place. Furthermore, as the Lord of the vineyard, he has every right at any moment to come in and wipe them out and take it back for himself. In fact, that's what says will happen in verse 9. What will the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Yet here, the owner of the vineyard does not exercise that authority Immediately, he patiently, kindly continues to reach out to the tenants, even to the point of sending his beloved son, which is the climax of this entire parable. And they kill him. He willingly sends his beloved son into this insanity, into this fray. And his beloved son willingly goes. Second. This highlights not only God's patient faithfulness. But it highlights the tenant's twisted wickedness. So the wickedness is obvious. We see it in their actions. But what do we mean by by twisted? How are they they? Twisted in this wickedness. How are they so backward and, and blind and, 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 and really operating in what amounts to an insane type of way? How are they twisted in their wickedness? Well, the climactic moment in the, in the parable, the sending of the beloved son and their response reveals their twistedness. When the, when the son comes, this is when we see the tenants actually speak. And what, what do they say? Verse 8, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So this reveals their motive all along. Their motive is they want what the owner has. They want the inheritance. They want it all. They want the vineyard. 
everything. How is this twisted? Well, in light of redemptive history and who God is, it reveals that they do not even know their God. They don't even know what their God has already promised them. God is a giver. And he has already set in motion, made them his people, and promised to give them the very thing that they're trying to remove God from the picture and take. They're in the position they are now by God's grace. With God's temple in their midst. And God has promised to give them the inheritance through his son. He wants to give you that inheritance. This is what God has desired to do for his people Israel. This is what God has desired to do for humanity from the beginning. Is to give, him, to give his very self to his people. To dwell in their midst so that they would have the inheritance of who he is in him. God is a giver. The only way that Inheritance comes is through his beloved son, but sinful man is twisted in his wickedness, is blind and is a taker and will wreck and will kill the very one who would be their inheritance. So they kill the son, the one who would make them co-heirs with himself. But while they have wrecked the vineyard and killed the son, The Lord of the vineyard will come and destroy and build something new. The inheritance that they try to take, which is truly the sons, will be given to all, all others, that is, who receive the son as the foundation and cornerstone of the Lord's new building project. Look at Verses 10 through 12. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So in This we see the gospel and the gospel God gives to us and builds us up into his temple. The Jewish religious leaders here are a self-fulfilling prophecy. They hear the parable, understand it is about them, and then what do they do? They reject Jesus. They think they have the authority and they will do anything to try to retain it. They are afraid of losing it. Even if it means killing the Son of God, they will do everything they can to keep themselves On the throne. We as sinful man are a self-fulfilling prophecy. We think we have authority. We will do anything, try to retain it, to hold on to our life, even if it means killing the Son of God, rejecting him. We take and we tear down, we wreck. Every past sin present sin, every future sin testifies to this reality that if we were left to ourself, if you were left to yourself, 
We would do just what these wicked tenants did, just what these Jewish leaders did. And we have. We would kill and reject the Son of God. But God sends his Son to us anyway. The precious, the precious stone that would be given, that would give us everything, be our foundation, he gives to us, and we look at it as a threat and cast it aside. And what we find is that stone that we rejected because it threatened our authority was actually the only thing that would keep any building project we thought we could do together. We'll find that whatever we build in this life under our own authority will come crumbling down. Built on sinking sand. Have you heard of the Millennium Tower in San Francisco? It's 58 stories, 645 feet combination of business and residential apartments on top, I think. It is sinking and tilting at an, <laughs> for a building that Tall, any inches is pretty extreme, and I think I read somewhere it's at an eight, 29 inches leaning. So much so that it's caused windows to start cracking because of the structural failure. People have bought apartments that are living in this thing. It will inevitably, unless there's some drastic intervention, fall and crumble because the foundation is built upon weak ground. And that's what we do. We cannot build. We can only tear down. And when we lie in the shambles of the life that we tried to build without the cornerstone, and we're looking for something to cling to and, try, and to try to rebuild where we've embraced all of our sin, another sin, bring this one, let me have that one, another pleasure, let me have that one, and find that nothing, no foundation is stable enough, no cornerstone, because we rejected it. But in the gospel, God says to you, oh yeah, that stone that you threw away, that one that you rejected because it threatened you, I've been using that stone to build something new, to build a refuge for you, to build a shelter for you. And if you will but come to that stone and cling to that stone and add yourself to this stone who is my son, you will find salvation. God takes our very rejection, our very sin, and turns it on his head and uses it in the cross of Jesus Christ, our rejection of him, to be our acceptance and salvation. Peter, as we read in Acts 4, he brings this very message of hope right back to the same chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And what does he say? That stone that you rejected is now your salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. I think, and we'll see Peter, we, we saw this morning Peter uh, will again mention the cornerstone. 
I think it's probably pretty personal for Peter because what did he do? He rejected the stone. And it is what? His salvation. It's yours. We've all rejected the cornerstone. But God has used it. God has used our rejection in the cross of Jesus Christ to be our acceptance and salvation. So in the gospel, God gives to us and he builds us into his temple dwelling. And when we see this clearly in spite of who we are, Jesus says that should move us to marvel and worship. So this, as we apply this gospel, should be at the heart of our worship in the new year, seeing God as a giver and a builder. First, we see God who gives. We worship God because he gives. He gives us life and breath. He gives us his son. He gives us an inheritance, eternal life with him. So we talked about how sinful man becomes a taker, but this gives us then insight into the disposition of the heart that worships God. The heart that worships self fears loss, sees God as a taker, sees him coming and sees his prophets coming, sees the son of God coming and perceives him as a threat, fearing what they might lose. But the heart of worship sees God, sees his prophets coming, sees the son coming. And the only thing it fears is missing out on what God would give in his son. That's the heart of worship. He realizes that God doesn't come to take, but God has come to give you his very self and his son, to give you an inheritance. So we see God as a giver. Second, God builds. We worship God because he builds. He has made you and me in Christ a living stone. He builds us into his spiritual temple where he dwells in our midst. So the exhortation to us is take part in this great building project of our God. Offer yourself as a living stone. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. For this is your spiritual act of worship. Peter says again, because we are living stones, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we actively take part in building up this temple because God has built us into his spiritual temple. How can we do that? How can you do that in 2024 using your gifts to build up this local body in fresh and new energized ways because this is the reality. God has made us and is building us into his temple where he will dwell in our midst and has invited us to actively be a part of that. We're not doing it as a way to repay God. We're doing it because when we see God coming, knowing he's the giver of all life, the builder of everything we have, what we hurry to do is say, how, where are the fruits that I can give to my Lord? So we marvel at this. God gave us his beloved son, Jesus to be rejected in order to usher in our salvation. The beloved son is the cornerstone of your salvation, of our salvation. The only one, no other name under heaven, 
does salvation come? He's the foundational piece of the spiritual temple that God is building us into so that he can give us himself to dwell with us now and into eternity. Where do we see that? We see that in this table. We see what we've been trying to envision this morning. Here in this table, we see the son rejected, killed, bloodshed. But here in this table, we also see our salvation. We see our cornerstone, the foundation on which everything is built. The life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus. So as we come to this table in a moment, we come to it remembering that we were once dead stones. That we had tried to build everything without using the cornerstone. But now, God has used the stone we rejected to make us living stones to build us into a spiritual temple. And as we take of this supper, we remember that. And we also look forward to the day and marvel at the reality that is to come when God will dwell with us forever and us with him in the new heavens and the new earth. For this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray, and then we'll come to the table.